Welcome to a special edition of the Sustainability Agenda, jointly with the Scope 3 Agenda with EcoVadis, an important new podcast exploring the ways in which senior business leaders in different industries are working to decarbonize their supply chains. In this series, we discuss companies' supply chain decarbonization journeys, the challenges, strategies, explore what's working, and identify key lessons and insights. This is the first interview in this new podcast series. You can listen to further episodes and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. I'm very pleased today to welcome Peter Spiller to the podcast. Peter is a McKinsey partner based in Frankfurt. He advises companies and business leaders across industries on the development and implementation of environmentally sustainable operations and ESG strategy, including carbon accounting and tracking, supplier sustainability transformations and supply chain decarbonization. So thank you very much, Peter, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. So I'm very much looking forward to getting your perspective on the challenges of decarbonizing supply chains and also setting the context a little bit in which uh, supply chain executives, business leaders are operating right now. But just before we go into that, maybe can you just tell us a little bit about your background and job, Peter? Very happy to. I'm a partner at McKinsey in Frankfurt. I'm 20 years plus uh, with the firm. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work in operations improvements. I've been leading our procurement practice uh, for many years. And in fact, I spend most of my life, uh, business life in consulting, uh, besides some uh, startup uh, time uh, in the in the 2000 area, uh, the e-commerce um, uh, times. And in fact, a lot of the current times uh, on decarbonization, on sustainability reminds me of that time in the, in the past. Very useful experience for uh, some of the issues we'll be discussing today. Now, before we go into the, the questions around decarbonization uh, proper, can you maybe just give us a sense of what are some of the pressing supply chain issues that you think companies are facing right now? I mean, clearly, different uh, sectors will be facing very different situations. But I wonder, are there a couple of general points you would highlight? So I guess the the number one topic uh, uh, top of mind for supply chain executives right now is resilience. So look at the semiconductor shortage that we've had since COVID started. Look at inflation in raw materials now. Uh, look at um, actually the fact of getting supply you know, due to the war in, in Ukraine. These are all the, the big topics that are top of mind right now. Uh, connected to this is tier N supply chain transparency you know, for parts tracking, for quality, for ESG uh, and sustainability criteria. So that's a connected one and, and is definitely also top of mind. Cost still matters. I mean, that's for sure. Uh, and many companies realize it's hard to push for cost savings right now, but obviously this is uh, also still priority and that what companies really realize is that collaboration along the value chain is uh, basically the recipe for unlocking the next s-curve of uh, value there's a number of examples in different industries let me just mention one in automotive catena x and an ambitious uh, effort to bring together various players in the automotive industry along the value chain to share data more transparency I think these kind of things are uh, top of mind because there is a promise of those unlocking significant value in the future. Yes, it's it's very interesting you say that, Peter. Many companies have been dealing with urgent supply chain challenges in the last couple of years with COVID, the Ukraine war, supply chain bottlenecks, 
how difficult is it for companies to keep focused on longer term sustainability issues while dealing with these shorter term, more immediate challenges? Yeah, so what I see is that sustainability is fundamentally top of mind uh, of uh, executives now uh, as well. I mean, customers, investors, employees, regulators, they are all pushing. Um, But uh, it obviously is clear that many of the objectives that are set for sustainability uh, take science-based targets and decarbonization objectives. They are typically 2030, 2040, 2050 uh, latest for net zero. And they are much more longer term than the um, kind of real issues at hand uh, that uh, people are wrestling with. The risk is indeed that uh, resilience and supplying the factory, quote unquote, outdoes longer term sustainability issues uh, for now. Uh, but at the same time, what we do see is that there is obviously synergies as well. And the crisis that we see, uh, they do pose opportunities for acceleration as well. Take the Ukraine war. I mean, the energy transition uh, towards solar and wind will be accelerated by what we are seeing. I'm, I'm very sure of that one. Uh, take the shortages in the supply chain that we see everywhere right now. It will push for more openness, more supply chain transparency, for more trust and sharing. And these are all good things that help on the sustainability angle as well. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I guess coming to this question of scope three, clearly there are a range of, of sustainability questions. I'm just wondering, uh, in terms of scope three decarbonization questions, what makes that so very challenging? Do you think, Peter? So scope one and two is simple. Yeah, it's it's under direct control by companies. It's scope one is the fugitive emissions uh, and uh, emissions from uh, resources directly owned. Scope two is Uh, basically everything uh, associated to energy, so primarily electricity and steam. Uh, And scope three is everything outside the value chain. And uh, that makes it complex already. Also, scope three is 15 different categories. It starts from purchased materials, capex, up and downstream logistics, uh, travel, commute, uh, and then product use, product disposal, and and a few other uh, categories. And getting your arms around those ones is just... um, complex, a lot more complex than uh, dealing with scope one uh, and and scope two. Now, it is important to note that um, when the greenhouse gas protocol defined scope one, two, and three, uh, they explicitly and intentionally defined this to be double counting. Um, uh, In a way, if all companies were reporting their scope one and two emissions properly, we would be done. Scope three is just extending this to to the value chain. And it's allowing companies to basically put pressure on their upstream and downstream uh, suppliers and customers. And what we see is that in particular, the leaders are doing this. They have signed up to science-based targets. They uh, need to adhere to SEC um, uh, regulations now in the future that all push for scope three, transparency and targets and so on as well. Uh, And leading companies on the sustainability and decarbonization front, they are pushing uh, their ambitions uh, upstream uh, and uh, and downstream. Uh, now, this is obviously good, but it also means that you have to control your upstream suppliers. You have to influence your downstream uh, customers. So how do you do this, right? I mean, how do you reduce product use and disposal? How do you influence your suppliers? How do you help them? How do you incentivize? Uh, how do you set targets and how do, how do you manage? I mean, all these questions are more complex and more hard to come by with um, because they are indirect and not uh, on your direct emissions. 
Very interesting. And how alert would you say boards and C-suite executives are in general to scope three issues? And again, I guess it'll vary a little bit with industry as well. So I, I would argue this topic is already relatively high on the agenda and uh, science-based targets and SEC and others have definitely helped um, uh, as discussed. What I do see is that a lot of education uh, is needed. So what levers do I actually have to influence uh, scope three? Uh, where do I need to collaborate uh, and how? Uh, and basically to start with, how do I actually measure? Yeah. And there is a lack of standards, there's a lack of data, there's a lack of systems and trust, uh, and this is all a pretty big issue uh, to really resolve uh, the, the, the topic. Now, if you're asking what needs to happen to elevate the topic even more, I think there's two primary forces, regulation and even more clear demand signals uh, from consumers and customers for lower carbon products will eventually make a difference uh, to elevate the topic even more. That's very interesting that, that you, you talk about the consumers, but I guess the uh, regulatory environment is tremendously important. Can you talk about the significance of that and, and what's happening there, Peter, maybe? Yeah, I mean, let me start with SPTI. I mean, there's thousands of companies that have signed up to science-based targets now. It's it's really a, a, a groundswell of companies. Um, CEOs compare themselves to others. Uh, they see uh, that their competitors are signing up and they feel forced to do the same. There's, there's peer pressure yeah, in the market. And uh, you can only get a science-based target um, sign-off um, if you basically cover scope three emissions as well, as long as they are meaningful. And it is meaningful or they are meaningful uh, for, most, uh, for most companies. Uh, so there, there is no escape, basically, in tackling the issue once you have set science-based targets. Um, the SEC uh, have changed their re regulations as well. They look primarily from a risk perspective, but also now uh, include scope three uh, into uh, what companies need to report and, uh, and manage. And all these changes, obviously, I mean, SPTI is voluntary, it's not regulatory, but all these changes put a tighter knit of pressure uh, on companies to actually tackle scope three emissions. Very interesting. Thank, thank you, Peter. Now, you, you've touched on some of these issues uh, already, but can you just uh, identify what you would say a few of the key is, biggest challenges companies facing with, with dealing, dealing with scope three? As I said, I mean, comprehension and capabilities is a is a first one. There's very few people on the market right now that are experts in doing life cycle analysis, LCAs, which is basically the underlying science to do carbon product level carbon uh, assessments. Um, uh, and uh, the, these people are in, in big need. Um, there aren't too many on the market. So this, so this is, new, is, is new for many companies today. I mentioned standards. I mean, there's the greenhouse gas protocol. There are different ISO standards as well. They are all pretty loose and they need to tighten uh, over time. I sometimes compare this to Wild West. There's, there's often a factor of 10 or 20 uh, in the numbers that you get if you calculate according to different standards, different methods, different numbers. Uh, on average, there's probably a 30, 40, 50% difference uh, in uh, in the calculations, depending on who you have calculating and, and how you exactly do it. There's a lack of primary data uh, that's uh, feeding into this. A lot of the calculations on emissions are today done with standard average emission factors. And, and this is helpful you know, to get a broad sense of where your emissions are and where you need to focus on, but it doesn't help you take business decisions like 
I rather source that uh, material from that supplier because it's lower emission and on a on a product level. In fact, I sometimes compare this with um, the whole situation with um, doing a U.S. GAAP uh, financial accounting uh, and reporting on the basis of average revenues uh, of the industry and average cost of the industry. Uh, and if you kind of portrait like this, it becomes very clear that everything that we are doing on carbon accounting right now is um, very far off from where we have to be at some point. Data and systems uh, is another one. I mean, there is no carbon accounting systems uh, out there yet. Carbon is in your currency, but the world doesn't have an accounting system. There's a plethora of different uh, companies, startups, established firms, and so on uh, coming up now. Uh, but um, accounting for carbon is just intrinsically more complex than than uh, cost accounting or revenue accounting. And considering the like not set uh, standard or immature standards, um, this is also something that needs to move. And then the last point is trust. Um, I mean, we've been seeing this with uh, different initiatives, in particular, the Partnership for Carbon Transparency of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. A lot of the discussions there and the objective of the effort is to establish a methodology and a platform for primary data-based product-level exchange of emission data is the topic of trust. Downstream companies are asking for a lot of data, but upstream companies that have to provide the data are afraid that the downstream companies would use the data on carbon emissions to deconstruct and re-engineer cost structures and put commercial pressure on them and so on. So establishing um, trust in the value chain among the different players uh, for the greater good of driving sustainability uh, is another big challenge that just takes time to happen. You talk about trust, Peter. Trust is clearly essential when it comes to collaboration with suppliers, a key issue when it comes to supply chain decarbonization. Can you explain why you think collaboration is so important and what are some of the challenges here? Yeah, so, so I mean, the, the notion of collaboration came across already, right? Because scope three is up and downstream uh, in your value chain. And uh, it's actually not only true for scope three, but I believe sustainability in general is something that can only happen uh, in uh, collaboration uh, with others. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. I, I'm working quite a bit in semiconductors as well. The biggest emission sources are uh, electricity. So moving to renewable electricity is one big thing. Uh, and then uh, they use a lot of specialty gases with high global warming potential that basically need to be abated. Now, um, in Asia, on islands like Taiwan and Singapore and so on, there is very, very little renewable electricity. You, so companies need to collaborate with regulators, with local developers to actually get renewable electricity into these places. They need to collaborate with gases manufacturers and abatement technology manufacturers uh, to basically solve for the puzzle of uh, 100% abatement of the specialty gases. Take the example of automotive companies, where we are working quite a bit on green steel, yeah, green plastics, green aluminum, uh, vegan leather. Yeah? And you always have to change specifications on your end. You have to work with your supply chain. Uh, you have to incentivize uh, suppliers. There is... Um, there's companies coming up, H2 Green Steel, for example, in the Nordics, um, a startup producing steel, green steel. Um, a lot of automotive companies have invested into them in the hope to basically get supplied with green steel as of 2025. So 
teaming up, working with others is just uh, critical. And no single company can become sustainable or decarbonize uh, alone. You always have to work uh, with others. And scope three is specifically interesting uh, because of its definition, yeah, being up and downstream uh, emissions uh, in a value chain. Now, what many companies do is they they start setting targets, right? They set upstream targets uh, to their suppliers, uh, which is all good. But many suppliers also need advice, needs tools, need tools, need help in order to really get something done. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. You talked about the question of influence before. It's a theme that uh, comes up again and again when when looking at scope three questions. Yeah, and and indeed, uh, we are, for example, doing quite a bit of work in supplier development, right? Uh, downstream companies that are leading on decarbonization and sustainability, helping their suppliers to actually make a difference. Uh, and I mean, it starts with segmentation, right? Understanding is the supplier already very mature, maybe even where you can partner and, and double down together, uh, or are they immature, need help, and uh, as a downstream customer, you can actually bring something to the party. Uh, and then uh, you may have to team up uh, with others, with other peers, other customers of the supplier, because you may not have a full influence or a, a sufficient uh, level of influence on these suppliers to actually uh, do something uh, on the decarbonization side. So we see a lot of alliances being formed, uh, companies teaming up uh, in various different industries. Uh, this whole topic of influence and do I have something to add uh, to the decarbonization of my supplier are very important questions that basically any company that is to some extent leading uh, uh, is addressing. Very interesting. And maybe we can touch on that a bit later. But can we first talk a little bit about the question of transparency, Peter? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously clear. What you don't measure, you can't manage, right? Uh, And I've pointed this out uh, several times already. Understanding the tier N value chain, understanding where carbon emissions are happening, and, and this is true for other ESG criteria uh, as well, right? Um, uh, take biodiversity, take water waste uh, consumption, take the social dimensions. People increasingly want to understand what's happening in their value chains uh, because they are measured. And very often companies have access to their first tier suppliers, uh, tier one suppliers, there's contracts and so on, but they have no clue what's happening tier two, tier three, tier four. And um, and that's because they don't have relationships. There's no contracts. Sometimes tier one suppliers also want to basically keep the secret, right? Because it gives them more ability to influence and uh, and change something. Uh, but all this is cracking open uh, to some extent. Uh, tier N transparency uh, makes a big difference uh, for many of these things. Let me mention the this um, partnership for carbon transparency again that the World Business Council for Sustainable Development has launched. Uh, and um, uh, there's got you know, 60, 70 different enterprises and alliances uh, already part of it that targets to build a methodology for uh, the exchange of carbon emissions in value chains in a verified way uh, on a product level. Uh, it's also building a platform. So together with major tech players in the industry, uh, building a tech platform uh, for this exchange and also an ecosystem of players that um, exert the trust yeah, that I talked about uh, to actually get this going. So transparency is indeed uh, critical and uh, we don't have it today. Yes, indeed. Companies are at different stages in their decarbonization journey. 
I'm just wondering, do, does uh, the priorities and the focus that companies need to bring to bear on these questions change a little bit, maybe at the beginning, the middle and later on in the journey? What are a few things that companies need to get right and maybe how that changes a little bit over time? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. I mean, companies absolutely go through a journey uh, on this one. And, and I would assume there is a couple of um, uh, core learnings that are that are relevant for most. And, and um, obviously, these learnings change also depending on the maturity. Um, I mean, to start with, I mean, there's one recommendation to start rough and become better over time on scope three emission transparency. I mean, no company kind of gets it perfect the first time. In fact, I've seen some companies that have corrected uh, their uh, numbers, their scope three numbers by 20, 30 percent or so from one reporting year to the next one because they advanced their um, and, and made more mature their methodology. I'm not saying this is perfect. Yeah? I mean, one should do this better, um, but uh, it is happening. Yeah? So start rough and move from very rough uh, activity data and rough emission factors to something that's getting more granular over time uh, is uh, is one way to think about this. Materiality uh, is a second uh, learning, right? Uh, you have to go 80-20 uh, to, some to some extent. You have to look at what matters. Uh, you can't uh, go deep on everything. And the current standards, they allow putting priorities uh, as well. Ultimately, this is not about getting the getting everything right at the decimal point. Uh, it's about um, focusing on the topics that, that really matter. Another, another learning or another best practice is that, I mean, there is no perfect system uh, out there yet that helps you in your uh, carbon accounting. Uh, so the recommendation is to explore, to test offerings, um, uh, that have a bolder vision that are coming to the market. Um, uh, build your own system. Uh, build your own on build, uh, on your own data lakes and infrastructures and and so on. Uh, build your own um, uh, uh, systems that uh, basically respond to the use cases that you, as a specific company, uh, have on the topic of carbon accounting. Be it yeah, guiding sourcing decisions or preparing the annual report, the annual sustainability report, coming from use cases uh, makes um, makes a lot of sense and, and is a clear best practice. There, there, are, there are others. I mean, there is for sure one to engage with industry initiatives you know, to drive standards forward, uh, to drive uh, a par, um, product carbon uh, footprint rules. Uh, teaming up with others to advance the whole ecosystem, to advance the maturity with that, to advance the suppliers as well, uh, is um, is uh, quite relevant. Yeah, and we see a lot of companies uh, doing this. And then maybe last, uh, be humble. Yeah? I mean, everyone is learning uh, at this point. Uh, and um, I mean, everyone is trying to get their arms around scope three, around uh, sustainability and tracking of sustainability in general. Um, my strong recommendation is to stay away from the temptation to greenwash or portray things too positively. It will backfire at some point as scrutiny from NGOs and regulators and the press and so on is increasing uh, and staying clear from these things and um, like putting numbers out and, and reports out and so on that really res uh, reflect uh, reality uh, is what at least I recommend to my clients. 
I suppose it's, that is a challenge. Companies don't really want to be shown to, to not have the answers. And I suppose there are issues around that in terms of how corporations communicate about these kind of questions, because as you say, these are very complex questions. There are the new kinds of questions and they're still at a, a fairly early stage in terms of the definition and, and the ways of dealing with them. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, there is real business opportunity out there Yeah, from um, offering lower carbon products or zero carbon products. There's a race happening in different industry. Who has the first zero carbon car, the first zero carbon uh, uh, washing machine? I mean, th this is happening. I mean, you only have to look at the consumer goods companies that are putting vegan uh, meals uh, and, and um, lower carbon uh, products uh, out there. There is opportunity for differentiation and price premium. Uh, and obviously, in order to get the numbers right behind this, there needs to be a proper uh, accounting. Now, as as these like uh, products are coming out more into the market, uh, as people are communicating these numbers, the scrutiny on the correctness of these numbers will also rise. And that is why uh, why I'm saying, um, yeah, I mean, get these things right and be rather humble than um, uh, too pushy uh, uh, in your external communication. We touched on this earlier, Peter, but can you talk a little bit more in detail about the challenge of achieving longer term sustainability goals while dealing with shorter term supply chain issues? Indeed, I mean, companies need to get the balance right. Now, if we come back to the topic that we started with, um, they need to balance the short term needs around resilience and supplying the factory with these longer term uh, uh, topics uh, as well. Um, and I don't think there's a silver bullet uh, for doing this. Uh, I think um, uh, what is helpful is to always work on two horizons, right? Keep both the short and the long-term horizon in mind. Uh, think about the no regrets for the future and execute strategically all the measures when they are in sync with also today's needs. I mean, examples include, for example, if you have to switch suppliers anyway now for you're not getting supply anymore, uh, and so on. Uh, you can already look for, can I bring in suppliers that have a lower carbon footprint uh, as well? Uh, when I'm anyway uh, on the verge to establish some tier end transparency for um, uh, part supply uh, on semiconductors and so on, I mean, can I bolt on some transparency on the ESG impact, the carbon impact uh, of um, the tier end uh, value chain? Um, the, the looking and, and working in a cross-functional way yeah, and, and getting uh, the mix of people that are actually dealing with these topics, uh, the ones that deal with more short-term and long-term, uh, but also people from different functions. Um, these are all um, kind of um, pieces to the puzzle yeah, uh, to solve this balance between the short-term pressures and still doing the right things on the long run. Very interesting. I, I guess you're touching on maybe some of the softer issues there. We hear a lot about technology and tools and AI and, and, and measurement systems. But I guess there are important cultural dimensions to the, these questions as well. Yeah, so the kind of biggest topic probably is capabilities. And I mentioned this a couple of times. But, but indeed, I mean, uh, cultural topics uh, matter also. I mean, if you're working in an established industry in oil and gas, for example, you're willingness to accept that the world is moving to decarbonize um, is not necessarily easy for everyone, right? I mean, I am facing uh, people uh, that 
I wouldn't say deny climate change, but um, companies naturally try to basically uh, uh, run as long as they can on the established business models that they have had in the past. And there are some that really make a shift. Um, uh, take an Orsted, for example, it was formerly Danish oil and gas, and they now became the biggest um, uh, offshore wind developer, um, basically sold off all their dirty, quote-unquote, assets. But on that size, you can do it. You can probably not do it on the level of one of the, the oil majors. And, um, and like culture change and mindset change in terms of doubling down on these topics uh, and seeing the opportunity yeah, that comes from growth and premium and so on, rather than the risk of uh, losing established businesses and relationships and so on, uh, is definitely not easy to manage uh, in all companies. What are a few mistakes, Peter, that you see companies making on their supply chain decarbonization journeys? So, I mean, I do see companies that take this more piecemeal, yeah, that believe they can like tackle um, kind of individual um, topics where they're getting pushed on by investors, for example, or by customers uh, as kind of uh, we take the step and we are done. You know, for example, I sign up to science-based targets, uh, I fill the templates and, and then we should be fine. Um, I think people have to realize there is a fundamental transformation needed uh, for many companies uh, indeed. Uh, and only if you embark on that, you can indeed um, unlock the opportunities uh, as well uh, that are out there in terms of being faster and commanding a premium, uh, in terms of establishing you know, a new name, a new brand uh, for uh, lower carbon products, for more uh, ESG-friendly products, uh, and um, not recognizing this is a that this is a massive change and it needs to be basically tackled head-on is probably the like bigger uh, bigger uh, issue um, or uh, challenge uh, that um, or mistake that I've seen from uh, from companies. Yes. What's at stake here? Getting it right, being slightly behind the curve, thinking that, you know, the industries will change, it's going to happen. Um, or even, as you say, being to some degree in, in, in some kind of cultural denial to aspects of this. What's at stake uh, competitively? It's not going away. It's only growing in importance. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's for sure. I mean, it's not going away. Um, the The implication is very different by industry. Yeah, uh, one one has to realize. I mean, if you're in oil and gas uh, today or in coal, uh, uh, through the energy transition, uh, it, kind of a lot of these businesses will have to completely change uh, what they are doing and move to hydrogen and uh, 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 bio uh, bio energy uh, and so on. Uh, massive change needed, and um, uh, yeah, hundreds of thousands of um, uh, workplaces as well uh, affected. Uh, take the automotive industry. Um, a similar similar story with the move to electric vehicles, uh, but this is already in full swing and and completely happening. Uh, if you take um, uh, other industries, yeah, I mean, take the foods industry. I mean, the the need <clears throat> the the need of uh, of the the global population to uh, move to a diet that is less based on um, on, uh, on on meat. Uh, it makes a massive change or triggers a massive change in uh, how agriculture 
uh, is done, obviously, uh, killing many, many jobs at the same time, creating uh, many, many more new ones. Um, uh, take uh, take the industries that are really up for growth, you know, hydrogen and uh, electrolyzers and um, uh, kind of any type of uh, bioenergy or, or solar and wind. Uh, we see we will see massive changes in these industries and, and people flocking there. So, I mean, you can basically go industry by industry and then figure out what is the challenges and what is the like opportunities uh, in those and what is the value at stake yeah, uh, in order to get this right. And I have to say, I mean, there is industry where it definitely makes sense to be like leading the up, up play offense, uh, as we call it. Uh, there may be some where just playing along for a little longer may, may in fact be the right answer. Not being conscious of all the changes that are happening, not uh, acting decisively, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure uh, is not the right answer anymore. Right, right. The the uh, leadership clearly tremendously important, and we talked at the beginning about the the way in which this uh, these questions are rising up the the, the agenda, as it were, or, or on senior management's uh, mind. What would you recommend to executives who may be working in an environment uh, or, or in, in an organization where some of the senior executives don't quite get it? Um, some advice from maybe some executives uh, about communicating and, and, and creating change as well. And clearly, when the board and, and all the, you know, the C-suite are, are really on, on top of this, it's, it's, it's much easier to get uh, buy-in and change across the organization. That's not always the case. Yeah, so, I mean, what I see is that obviously the CEO makes a big difference, right? I mean, most of the companies that are leading uh, on sustainability and decarbonization are led by a CEO who fully buys into this and basically pulls all the troops uh, along. Um, so this is probably the, 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 first, um, the first dimension here. Um, I mean, the second is... Uh, listen to customers, right? Listen to regulators. I mean, have an open eye of what's happening out there uh, and um, kind of make sure that internal people that may not be fully on board yet are getting exposed to what's happening um, uh, in the industry. Um, peer exchanges, best practice exchanges can make a big difference. Uh, I mean, I've been seeing many companies really coming around and recognizing what's happening uh, once they started to uh, talk to peer companies, look at what competitors are doing uh, and just exchange with others in the values, uh, value chain to see how yeah, oftentimes far ahead uh, others uh, have been already uh, co compared to them uh, themselves. I wanted to touch on the question of data and uh, gathering data. Companies know a lot about what's going on inside their company, but gathering data outside the company. And you mentioned this, you know, the, the first uh, layer of, as it were, of suppliers and then getting further data. What approaches, uh, can you, uh, any general comments about the question of gathering data, getting good data? And, and, and if you can't get access to, to accurate data, you know, uh, using estimates or assumptions and that kind of thing. I mean, you touched on that as well, but I'd be interested to get a, li a little bit uh, deeper into that, Peter. Scope mm -hmm. 3 emission calculation is always some type of activity data times emission factors. And uh, activity data, for example, is like purchased materials. So everything that you have been buying, and if you buy a ton of steel or hundreds of tons of steel, there's a certain emission factor. You multiply it with, you get your emissions. Now, um, the issue is that even activity data uh, for most companies are, they aren't so completely transparent. Uh, many companies obviously know what their spend is, uh, 
so their purchase orders, the invoices, uh, what they have spent with suppliers, but there is not necessarily the volumes uh, in kilograms and in, in square meters, uh, basically, uh, connected to it. And emission factors that you can then tie it to that uh, are obviously connected um, or they are better uh, if they are uh, linked to um, to real volumes and weights uh, rather than, um, than spend figures. Um, then, uh, I mean, there, there is various different ways uh, to calculate um, uh, the emissions. Yeah? There's various different emission factors that you can use. You can use global averages. You can use regional ones. You can be, use country-level uh, emission factors. You can get to the level of supplier-specific and SKU-specific. But this is a transition, and this is hard, right, uh, getting this type of data from suppliers uh, just uh, isn't easy. And very often your suppliers, if you ask them, they don't even have a clue on how to calculate um, the emissions because then themselves have to calculate or take numbers from their own operations, uh, the operations of their suppliers, um, the primary emissions associated with the materials that they are buying, multiply it all and bring it together. So there, there is a tier and network of um, basically data sharing calculations um, between um, uh, activity data and primary database emission factors that basically has to happen. Uh, and this is by nature very, very complex and error prone uh, as long as there is no platforms and no clear standards, methodologies and mechanisms uh, to actually do that. That's very interesting because you, you, I think you said earlier as well that you need to start somewhere in some sense and that even recognizing that these are in some cases going to be a little bit rough, the data, the whole process is it better to get, get going with it rather than wait until the, the, the tools are there to get the most more accurate figures. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm convinced that it's, at this point it's, it's more important to just get started and make sure that there is core KPIs uh, like how good is the data that's being provided? What is the share of primary data that is part of it? Against what standard is it being measured? As standards are also evolving over time. So attaching um, uh, parameters with the data that's being submitted from one company to the next, uh, that includes these kind of quality metrics. And then companies will start to look at the data themselves, the data itself, but they will also look at uh, these parameters and then push over time that they become better yeah? so that they can get a guarantee that the quality of the data is is also getting uh, getting better over time. Very interesting. You mentioned KPIs. Any insights and any, any particular advice about uh, how to think about that, what KPIs are useful or, or, or not in your experience, Peter? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think uh, I've got any very specific advice here, but um, I mean, coming from what are you trying to solve for? What's the use cases, uh, actually? And then deriving your KPIs from there uh, is probably the one recommendation uh, that I have here. And there's obviously uh, very good uh, platforms uh, kind of like EcoVars, but um, potentially like others as well, that um, very nicely pull together the KPIs along a value chain already for various of the ESG criteria. And, uh, and this is helping businesses clearly uh, already uh, to take decisions and uh, guide their sourcing and, uh, and uh, make a difference. Yeah? This can only 
uh, improve over time you know, by getting more primary data in, uh, getting, uh, getting more granular data, um, increasing the accuracy, the quality, and so on. And this is a journey of the next, whatever, three to five years. Fantastic. This is very, very helpful. Anything else that we uh, haven't mentioned that you think would be particularly useful in your experience, something to bear in mind? Uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground here, Peter. No, I mean, maybe probably I, I just close by saying, I mean, get started, right? I mean, most companies have started and are on the journey as well. Uh, those ones who haven't, I would only encourage to just get going and um, and move. Um, it, as you said, I mean, this topic is not going away. Um, as the world, uh, we have to uh, push the decarbonization a lot faster than we've been doing it in the past. And um, uh, the the positive thing is that, I mean, there is increasing momentum. I mean, we've seen it at, at COP26. Many companies are really taking this uh, more and more seriously and, and, and acting. And if uh, companies collaborate, and this is a good thing to see right now. I mean, there is a lot less competition around this topic of uh, uh, sustainability, low carbon products and so on that I see. I mean, people are really eager to collaborate and make a difference together. Yeah, join forces with others and uh, get moving and get it done. Get it done. Uh, Good advice there, Peter. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your expertise and the work you've been doing in this area. And I wish you all the best with your ongoing work, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it inspiring. If you'd like to continue listening to the Scope 3 Agenda with EcoVadis podcast, you can listen to further episodes and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Play. Finally, we'd be very grateful if you could help spread the word on social media and leave a review as this will help others find this new podcast series.